Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to episode number 302 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is January 6, 2014, our first show of 2014. We've got a big one for you. we got Dan Weber coming up a little bit later on in the show. We've got Harvey Hyde in the first segment talking about the future of this USC football team under Steve Sarkeesian. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Podcast at uscfootball.com is our email address. Or you can call us at 206-888-6755. Leave a voicemail there. Go to peristylepodcast.com. Leave a voicemail right there on the webpage. All right, without further ado, Coach Harvey Hyde. What's up, Coach? How are you? Ryan, how you doing? Happy New Year to everybody out there. And, uh, yep, uh, we're down now to the national championship game tonight. Uh, you told me earlier you are going. I'm going to go. We'll see uh, just what happens with Florida State and Auburn. But uh, a lot of things happening. A lot of the uh, high school all-star games are now completed. Uh, recruiting now is uh, about ready to get out of its dead period uh, on January the 16th. Uh, some of the verbal commits will stay. Some of the verbal commits will go away. And some of the undeclared will start verbal committing. So a lot happening, Ryan, a lot happening. Certainly, Coach. And uh, you mentioned that the national championship game tonight, if you want to go to that, Go to sctickets.com. You can still go if you're here in Southern California. Probably not if you're somewhere else because it's going to be hard to get here. But sctickets.com, they can hook you up with tickets, 1-800-888-7287. If you need tickets for that or anything else, they'll take care of you like they take care of us. And, uh, Coach, I wanted to jump into some of these questions right away. We can talk about the championship a little bit later, but we had some USC questions. There's a, this is one, a uniform one. I know you like these. Uh, here's a voicemail question for you. Uh, good morning, Ryan, Coach Hyde, Dan. Uh, this is Ed Duncan up in the high desert calling. Um, I wanted to call and congratulate this magnificent group of men that make up the Trojan football team. Uh, what adversity they have played under and how well they have done. And with a little luck, they could have probably went 12 and 12 and 1, 12 and 2, uh, 13 and 1. But what a great group of young men. Uh, once again, I want to voice my opinion on something. I would certainly like to see USC um, modernize their uniforms. You can still keep the old uniforms like a lot of the teams are doing. But come up with some real fashionable uniforms. And the reason for that is it's a fad that's exploding across the country. And when you're trying to rebuild, you want to use everything at your disposal to try to get back on top. So that's my opinion. Fight on Trojans. I am so proud of you guys. And the coaching staff also. Okay, have a good new year, Ryan, Coach Hyde, and Dan. Fight on. Oops, sorry. Well, thank you there. very much. Thank you very much. You know, uh, uh, that's amazing he asked that question, Ryan, because uh, on Trojan Brunch, a show I do on ESPN Radio, when we had Coach Steve Sarkeesian on, 
uh, I had a couple of things to talk to him about. I said, Coach, before we get started here and talk football, I want to ask you about a few things. And one of the questions I asked him was about the uniforms at USC. I said, Coach, there's been a lot of changes in uniforms uh, throughout the country. At Washington, you did it there with uh, the Huskies uniforms, different types of helmets and so on. What's your thoughts about the uniforms at USC? Are you going to keep the traditional uniforms or what? And he thought for a moment, and he said to me, he said, I see nothing to change with the uniforms at USC. He said, I like them. They've got great tradition. Uh, That's what it's all about. And I didn't basically say anything more because, Ryan, you've heard me on this show, and our regular listeners has heard, have heard me on this show saying, great tradition doesn't need to change the uniform. It's what's in the uniform. And that's what I told so, uh, Coach Sarkeesian. I said, Coach, it's not the uniform. It's who's wearing the uniform. And he said, I agree 100%. If you look around the country, Alabama, they don't really change their uniforms. Auburn, who's in the national championship game, I haven't seen them change their uniform. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if Florida State has ever worn a different uniform than what they're wearing normally all the time. Uh, Ohio State, I don't see them changing their uniform. Penn State, I haven't seen them change their uniform. And it goes on and on and on. Yes, there are some programs, and uh, along with UCLA and Oregon, they've had great success in doing that. I have not been a believer of that. I have been a believer It's who wears a uniform with the type of pride in the uniform, and if you want to go to the circus, that's fine. Go to another game, another school. But remember, you still got to play us, okay? So that's my philosophy. Now, of course, everyone has their philosophy, and uh, mine is a little different. So I guess I'm more old school and I'm not into fads. <laughs> I'm into winning football games. And I think that's the way I look at that, Ryan. All right. Uh, good stuff there. And, uh, you know, uh, maybe you want to comment on the earlier part of what he was talking about, how proud he was of how this team kind of persevered. And, uh, you know, he's, I guess he's got uh, bright aspirations for the future. He thinks that the future is bright for USC. No, I agree with him 100%. At the beginning of the season, I had them down as 12-1 and one or on the regular 13 regular season game. The game I thought they might lose, the game that I was most scared of was the Arizona State game there. I thought every other game on the schedule was winnable. And then, of course, it didn't start the way it was supposed to start. And and then the changes in coaches and everything else that happened during this season, I think a 10-4 and four season and the way they finished this season under Clay Helton, their third head football coach, and really dominating in the Las Vegas Bowl against Fresno State, who could have gone to a BCS Bowl game if they hadn't lost to San Jose State, just demonstrated the type of athletes and attitude an ability that can be there when motivated and put in the right place to do what they do well. So I agree 100%. I think that USC had a tremendous year under the circumstances, yet they have still great potential, but they have great players. Great players is what USC is all about. And where does that start, Coach? That starts in recruiting. And this next question, kind of a recruiting question, but I think, uh, well, I guess it's going to tie into a recruiting question. And um, with Randall Cunningham, maybe before we go to this question, maybe we'll have you talk about Randall Cunningham Jr., who you recruited Randall Cunningham to UNLV. He played for Bishop Gorman High School. He's going to come to USC on a track scholarship. We have a question about 
a football life uh, that Randall Cunningham was a subject of I want to get to. But before we get into that, maybe have you talk a little about anything you know about Randall Cunningham Jr.? Well, I've had a chance to meet the, the young man. It's Randall Cunningham too. That's really, it's not Junior. It's oh, Randall two. Cunningham too. Okay. Not that you, you didn't know that, but I'm just telling all of our listeners out there, that's the proper way uh, that Randall has always been around him. I've been around him once. I remember when he was growing up, he threw a football across the room, room and hit me right in the eye with it <laughs> when I wasn't expecting him to throw it. He's running around the house. He threw pretty good bullets then. <laughs> But he's a great athlete. He's about 6'6", uh, built slight because he's a great high jumper. You know, he's the greatest high school high jumper in America. He broke the national record and set records as a sophomore, as a junior. Last year went seven three and a half, and uh, also played football. And played football on a team, Bishop Gorman High School, who went 14-2, and two, won the state championship for the fifth straight year, Lost only to two teams. That's Booker T. Washington, who went 14-0 and and won the high school national championship as far as rankings, along with Mount, Mountain Point out of Arizona, who went 14-0 and and was ranked about fifth or sixth in the country in high school football. So they play the best teams they can play anywhere in the country. And in the state championship game, he ran for four touchdowns and passed for another for a state record in a quarterback scoring five touchdowns or anyone scoring five touchdowns in one game. Now, about the kid, he wasn't sure if he wants to be a high jumper. He does want to be a high jumper, and he likes football. But he's never had a chance to have a full year of football because during the off season he's always high jumping, which means he thins down. It's a different muscle, different exercise. His father coaches him. So he's not in all the other activities and camps and so on. So people don't know who he is as far as the football player is concerned. So he has committed verbally. I talked to his dad two days ago. He's verbally committed. The kid wants to go to USC. That's where the son, uh, Randall II is going to go and be a part of the track program. He'd be on a track scholarship. Now, also, I believe after you're at a university, and maybe you know this answer, after two years as being a, a, a scholarship athlete in another sport, you can then play football, and it doesn't count against you. Now, I'm not sure yeah, that's how true. that rule goes. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Correct. So then possibly, depending how his high-jumping career goes, because he's trying to, of course, go to the Olympics, which he probably will, then he might go out and try playing football. So uh, he'll be away from football a couple of years, but he certainly is a great athlete. And that, that currently is the plan that they have. And so everyone knows uh, this is the uh, nephew of Sam Cunningham. Randall and Sam are brothers, and Randall, too, is the nephew and the son of Randall Cunningham. I guess that's the best way of explaining it. Okay. <laughs> that, that's a good explanation. I like that. Um, and it's it's some insight that I think a lot of people, obviously you're close to the family and you know everyone there. So that's good to kind of share with the USC fans. Um, well, the, the, the original question, and I wanted to, that's why I wanted to bring up Randall Cunningham too, for Mike, he was saying, I was watching a football life and the subject was Randall Cunningham. And during the program, he stated they always wanted to go to USC, but others questioned him saying that USC would not use a black quarterback. They had already had Jimmy Jones from 69 to 71 and Vince Evans from 74 to 76. 
Uh, so could you give some kind of background on how he wound up at UNLV from your perspective, Coach? That's from Mike. Yeah, uh, I really felt uh, that he did not believe that he would be a quarterback at USC. He felt they were going to play him at defensive back or safety because of his speed and the way he could run and didn't feel that he would get a great shot at the, at the quarterback position. Uh, he played for Santa Barbara High School. They went 12-1, and played for the CIF Championship, uh, was an outstanding quarterback in high school, but just did not believe and felt as though USC was recruiting him as a defensive back. So uh, with that in mind, uh, UNLV uh, said, uh, hey, you're a quarterback, and, and, and you come to UNLV, and that's what your position will be. And he believed that. And uh, UNLV was one of the only schools in the country that did recruit him as a quarterback. I don't believe he was recruited by any other Pac-10 team at that time or Pac-8, whatever it was, but uh, came to UNLV and became a superstar quarterback and in the NFL became a superstar quarterback and and uh, I think someday should be in the College Football Hall of Fame, not only as a quarterback, but as a punter, and also the NFL Hall of Fame because he's the type of quarterback now, like the Colin Kaepernick and the rest of them, that are now setting the future for NFL football, and Randall did that years ago. Yeah, he certainly did. And uh, I'd be curious to see, Coach, if he ended up at USC, if he ended up playing quarterback. How that could have changed things. Obviously, it would have changed stuff for you. You wouldn't have had him at UNLV, but I wonder what he would have done at USC. I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, fortunately, I was coaching at USC or at UNLV at that time, so uh, <laughs> I, I feel better that he came to UNLV, okay? It worked out good for him. Now, don't get me wrong. He would have had a great career if they would have played him at quarterback at USC. But coming to UNLV certainly did brighten his future. He was the first quarterback taken, but in the second round that year, most valuable player in the East-West Shrine game, uh, went with uh, us. I, I was able to coach the Japan Bowl that year, and, and of course he was our quarterback against Doug Flutie, and we won in Japan. Uh, it was just a great experience for us. Still lives in Las Vegas. Randall has his own church, as a tremendous uh, leader in the community, coaches uh, the track teams. In fact, his daughter... As a freshman, won the state championship in the high jump and also the highest jump in the country as far as on the women's side of high jumping already as a freshman. So uh, he's, he's got great uh, – uh, he's passed on his genes, let's say, <laughs> to his children. They are great athletes, okay? Oh, it makes sense. <laughs> well, we'll see. You'll see him in uh, Cardinal Gold on the track. Uh, next year for USC. Um, we had a couple questions, Coach, actually on the Rose Bowl where you were, uh, Michigan State and Stanford. I thought we could kind of get to that since you're an expert on what's going on up there in Pasadena. Julian's starting it off with, uh, he wanted to get your overall analysis of Michigan State versus Stanford in the Rose Bowl, and he was particularly interested in to know why Stanford's front seven never really seemed to get all that much pressure on Michigan State quarterback. What was Michigan State doing to neutralize that group of Stanford defenders that had terrorized every team in the Pac-12? Well, you know, this could be a, a question I could do the whole uh, 
podcasts on, but I'll try <laughs> to make it brief. I had the opportunity of speaking to both teams and meeting both teams personally at the uh, Laurie's Beef Bowl. I was the MC and had a chance to go around and interview the coaches and talk to each player when they were eating and get to know them and so on. And uh, it was a great experience for me uh, to see these kids. Michigan State brought 112 players. Stanford brought 108 players. They brought everybody on their football squad. Tremendous. The restaurant was full of great athletes. Uh, and, and when they came in, the first night was Michigan State. Michigan State was a much bigger physical football team than Stanford. I would say they had 50 guys that were 6'5", 6'6", big physical 300-pound type of players. Now, Stanford was very physical, but not as many, more lean. Uh, Moreau and Carey and Anderson, great-looking kids, but different built, uh, different type type of kids. Uh, I thought that uh, Michigan State players were more excited about the game as far as when I was talking to them about what the Rose Bowl meant, the memories of the Rose Bowl, MVP, Hall of Fame, all the great players that have played there, what they're going to experience come January the 1st, which was four days away from the game. Uh, they really bought into it. And D'Antonio, when I interviewed him, you could feel it in his voice that this was something special. Stanford, it was something special. But remember, this is the second straight year they've been to the Rose Bowl, the fourth straight BCS Bowl game. So they were more business. They've been there. They knew the excitement. They knew what it meant, the whole thing. Now, as the game went along, Stanford early in the game jumped up 17 to, what was it, three or something. And Michigan State figured out immediately, hey, we're not going to be able to run the football or win this football game. We've got to start throwing the football. And they drove down the field with a minute and 36 seconds to go at the end of the first half and scored a touchdown to make it 17, what was it, 17-10 at halftime or 17-14, I don't remember now. But they altered and changed their game plan. Stanford didn't change their game plan. They still believed till the bitter end that their offensive line could pound the defense of Michigan State. Michigan State was very physical, played inspired football because they did not have their leader and middle linebacker, and they played maybe above their heads. Played man coverage almost the entire game, challenged their receivers, and Stanford basically stayed right with Gaffney running the football and not really opening up. When they did hit some passes, they got big gains, but not enough. They didn't run backs in the flat. They didn't do things I thought that were necessary to loosen up the Michigan State defense. They thought their big on big was going to wear down the big guys of Michigan, which they could not do. And when it came to the final part of the game, they passed up a opportunity to go for it on fourth down, and they kicked the field goal, and I felt at that time you should have gone for it. Uh, but they kicked the field goal and got three. That required them to get the ball back to get another uh, touchdown to win. Now, uh, on the fourth down call, when they run Hewitt up the middle, if they'd have ran a keep on that play, he'd have been going down the 110 freeway still now. He'd have probably been somewhere in Mexico because they all ganged up on that. They're in the box. 
They had been in the box the whole second half, nine guys, eight guys stopping the run, and they never did take advantage of that. They never made an adjustment. So I think that they played to the strength of Michigan State. Michigan State had shut down Ohio State. Michigan State was the number one defense in the country, but they never bought into it. They felt that they could still do what they lived with and what got them there was pound the middle, and they did not adjust to that. So I really think that was the difference in the game. It was a great game, great game for a spectator as far as uh, the game itself, as far as watching the game. uh, You do different things. It's easy to say after the game what you should do. But uh, Michigan State deserved the victory, and uh, I congratulate them from the Big Ten. All right. Uh, yeah, I was pretty conservative there at the end, and the lack of adjustments, I think USC fans are familiar with that <laughs> since you saw that happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I think about that, are they the only team in the Big Ten that won a bowl game? I know Ohio State lost. I know Minnesota lost. Uh, I know Iowa lost. Uh, I'm trying to think who else was in a bowl game from the Big Ten. I just thought of that right this minute. Maybe this isn't where I should – be doing my no, no, I can. I'd have to. I'd have to look it up for you, Coach. But yeah, I don't. I thought they'd won another bowl game. Michigan lot did. Michigan got beat by Kansas State. I can't think of another team that won. Now, I know somebody out there is saying, "Yeah, but so and so won." You're right, probably. I just can't remember. Uh, the Big Ten was uh, two and five, so they, that was their two, two and five. Two okay, and five, yeah. thank you for looking that up for me. Yeah, I don't remember. Like just, I, I remember seeing someone tweeting that, so I looked that up real quick and uh, got the. Oh, Nebraska won. That's who it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Nebraska beat Georgia. Yeah. All right. So there's a couple good wins there. Um, yeah, I can still think of it. And one last question from Terrian. He said, Coach, in the Rose Bowl game, Stanford defense had Michigan State back there on their heels when Michigan State got the ball with a couple minutes left in the first half. But then, as is often the case, Stanford went to a prevent defense rushing only three men, and Michigan State went down the field and scored. Why do coaches go away from what they've been, what's been effective defense into a prevent defense that often allows the opponent, opponent, opposing offense to move the ball quickly down the field? That's Terrian. Why do they do that? Well, I've had it work for me, and I've had it not work for me. Uh, I think you're, you feel that if you can keep the ball in front of you, that uh, they can't make every single play, and. Uh, They'll have to use their timeouts if they don't, and you hope they run out of timeouts, and you're able to uh, not allow the big play. You're afraid to gamble with corners, a uh, man, or whatever you're playing out there, and, and let up somebody get behind you. Uh, myself, I think if I was to do it again when I coach, I think I'd play the way we played the whole game if it was successful. Why change? They haven't been able to do anything. Why change? Um, uh, I agree with that. I've said that myself. When you start to go soft, you start to cover, you rush three and drop eight. Uh, and if you've got a great throw and you're not putting pressure and you can you know, hit the seams and the receivers are good, you can march right down the field. I agree 100%. Uh, it's, it's what happens, and if it works, you're, ha- you're, you're correct. If it doesn't work, you're wrong. It's a philosophy of what you believe in. Uh, I've had to tell my defensive coordinator, get out of that. Go after him. Get out of that. Play your regular defense. And I told one of mine once to do that at Wisconsin. We were playing Wisconsin. 
And I, gosh, I hate to go back to this. We had him beat, and it was third and 12. And I didn't listen to the defensive call. I would have played safe, safe on third and 12. But they're on their 18-yard line or something. And he blitzed. And they ran a quick trap up the middle. So we had nine guys going one way and one back going the other way with receivers blocking the defensive backs, and he ran it down to about the 10-yard line. They lined up and kicked field goal and beat us. We didn't need to do that. We should have played safe, let them have their 10 yards. That 10 yards isn't going to beat us. It's fourth down, make them do it, and we win the game. So I think it's, you know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, but you got to be on top of it to know when to and when not to. Oh, and I lost that game. I lost that game. Because I, I wasn't paying attention enough on the headset to know what the defensive call was. Oh, gotcha, Coach. So we say it worked both ways. But the, the prevent defense, people say it prevents you from winning and like it kind of gets the most. Usually people aren't as upset if you kind of go after the quarterback and make something happen. Unless, like you said, they, make a, they get a big play out of it and you lose the game. That's right. So, and that was my fault. Was we blitzed and they ran a quick trap up the middle. Guy, I can still see him. He's still running. <laughs> well, sorry to bring that up, Coach. I didn't mean to, didn't mean to yeah. bring up bad memories. But. That was at Wisconsin, too, and we had that game on. Doggone. Well, I just wanted to thank you again, Coach, and I'm sorry we got to missed you last week. I was you know, trying to do this on the road. It was a little difficult with all the stuff going on, but we're back to normal now. We'll get to talk about recruiting and all that kind of fun stuff, uh, what this staff is going to look like going forward and everything else. So thanks again, for Coach, for uh, coming on the show. Thank you very much, and for everyone out there, thank you for being a part of our show. Happy New Year to everyone. Enjoy the National Championship tonight, everyone, too. And we'll be back in 30 seconds with Dan Weber. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287, 1-800-888-7287, that's 1-800-888-7287, or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concert, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. We're back here on the Peristyle Podcast, back in studio, back in Los Angeles, uh, from our travels over the holidays. We've got Dan Weber joining the show. What's going on, Dan? How are you? Oh, pretty good. Pretty good. Kind of a in-between week here. Uh, All-Star game's over. we got uh, the uh, BCS, uh, final BCS game tonight. Man, it seems like a long time ago when those were like uh, something you expected to be a, uh, be a part of, or at least... With the with the game at the Rose Bowl, you expected to be a part of that, and uh, I think we're in that position where we're still looking at the, you know, when does this all end? How does it end? <laughs> does it end? You know, when do you get you know get back in the? I mean, and it's kind of frustrating in a way this year because you had a team that by the end of the year, uh, except for, you know the one big. You know, failure to uh, maybe tackle Brett Hundley. Uh, they uh, they probably could have played a lot of these teams. Uh, uh, this USC team that showed up at uh, in Las Vegas 
probably would have been a team that most of the teams in BCS bowl games really wouldn't have wanted to be on the other side of the field. Uh, where this team goes, where that team goes, I guess is the big question, and I don't think any of us have any answers. You know, starting at the you know at the very top at USC, uh, all the way down to people like us. <laughs> Nobody knows exactly. You know, where's where is this going? Yeah, we just uh, don't. We <laughs> we'll see. I mean, it's it's been an interesting few weeks, and maybe a good first question. We have Paul in Vegas uh, sent in this question. Uh, maybe it kind of ties into what you were saying, Dan. He said, "I'm curious." Dan, if you had a chance to talk to anyone from last year's incoming freshmen, so the recruiting class of 2013, to get a sense of what they thought of this past amazing and weird year. That's Paul in Las Vegas. That's a good question. And, you know, they've been kind of, uh, uh, I guess Sue Cravens is probably the, uh, I guess, the leader of of that that group and he's also the vocal guy he is he's vocal and he's uh i guess of all the guys he's he can always find something upbeat and positive and uh you know something that that he can make this into how this can really be turned into something you know special and he and it's one of the reasons he can be the kind of player he is with uh, you know the athletic gifts he's got and all that, he I would say he would be he would laugh about things and how things went with him personally, uh, you know, with some injuries and you know maybe not getting as much chance in the spring as he would have liked, you know, uh, to be able to do, and then uh, you know all the things that happened on defense, you know, from playing as well as you can play to you know getting yourself you know just run over a couple of times. Uh, He'd probably be uh, be as good, and he would laugh about it, and he probably did now that we think about it, and kind of like, you know, stuff happens. And uh, sometimes, you're, you know, you're on top and feeling great. Sometimes you wonder, you know, what the heck just happened to us? And uh, they've learned a lot, I'd say that. Those kids, the, the freshmen who played, uh, like, for example, you know, Quentin Powell and Michael Hutchings, they learned, you know, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of, you know, uh, ability to be able to play uh, mistake-free, for example, and to be able to, I mean, those two are pretty good prospects, and yet, you know, they didn't get in a lot of those games when, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, just based on the, on the defense, for example, because they really needed teams, you know, a team that played absolutely, you know, perfect error-free assignment, you know, perfect uh you know, defense, which is why, you know, they went with, you know, 12, 13 guys against Stanford, for example. Uh, so I think they learned, you know, they would tell you they they learned a lot about what they needed to learn and how, you know, how, uh, because I think that was one of the decisions they made on defense was, you know, do we try to rotate? Do we try to, you know, enlarge the rotation? We've got some pretty good young players. Or do we uh, try to be perfect? And they went for perfect. And that cut down the rotation. So as the year went on, actually, the younger guys got to play less, even though they were getting more experience. I think they're closer to being able to play, but they didn't. Uh, uh, but it, it's a really good question to ask them now. I think in the you know in, in, while the season's going on, you don't maybe have enough time to 
step back and really think about what you know what just happened. What are we learning here? But uh, I think that's an excellent you know way to approach uh, the winter workouts. Where are you know the, where is the class of 2013 after uh, you know where's Max Brown? You know he was you know in the role of uh, you know the third team guy didn't almost get you know any offensive reps. Uh, got some scout team stuff. Uh, and got to sit there, you know, up close and watch, uh, you know, what was happening with the two guys ahead of him. And uh, those would be excellent, uh, excellent reactions to get and reflections from those kids right now. But what happens during the season is you're so focused on the next game or the last game or whatever, you're basically, uh, you know, getting the reactions of the kids who are, you know, really a part of that. And uh, and most of these kids, you know, like a Max Brown, might have an opinion, but but be smart enough to say, you know, I'm not really a part of this right now in terms of, you know, this game or the next game. And uh, so they kind of defer a little bit. But uh, it'll be interesting to see where are they in terms of the winter and uh, getting ready for spring and and the second year of their you know their careers here. All right. Uh, well, thanks for that question. Let's see. Let's go to Tarek. Or Tarek, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Apologize if I uh, did that incorrectly. He wants to know, at Washington, Steve Sarkeesian used Bishop uh, uh, Sankey as a workhorse. Do you see him picking a uh, feature back? If so, who? Or do you think he'll spread the wealth among all the backs at USC? Heck of a question. Heck of a question. I don't know. (laughs) I don't think we know. Unfortunately, uh, (laughs) the multiple running backs, Probably don't know, but I bet it's a question they're asking themselves, and uh, I don't know. I would think it would be very, very diff- difficult to pick one guy. Obviously, last year, you couldn't have picked one guy if you wanted to because uh, other than, unless you picked Buck Allen, and of course we know the coaches, well, at least one of the coaches, didn't pick Buck Allen. <laughs> the one guy who was there every day, every practice, winter, spring, summer, and fall, and found himself fourth team. Uh, So uh, I guess one of the problems is the new guy who will be making that call is pretty close to the old guy who made that call. Uh, So I don't know. Again, it's another – you know, one of the – you know, the one position that, you know, if everybody's healthy, has a heck of a lot of depth – uh, you know, does the you know does Steve Sarkeesian, with his offense, have the ability to use multiple running backs? Now, Tommy Robinson surprised, I think, everybody with his ability to play as many as four running backs in a game, and even with you know guys like Ty Isaac, really young, you know, and and kind of raw, and there they were, and he was uh, you know even guys that. You know, hadn't practiced much because of injuries. Uh, they were able to get some mileage out of out of everybody. I, I was, I don't know that I'd ever seen, you know, a team that could use four guys, uh, and uh, that's rare. Unfortunately, Tommy Robinson, as of this moment, is not a member of this coaching staff, and uh, you know that's another issue. He was kind of a father figure to these uh, these running backs, and he is. Uh, He's not, uh, he not there, so we don't know. That's a, one of those uh, questions that no matter what they tell you they're going to do, 
we really aren't going to know until we get, you know, the end of August and they play that first game. Maybe we'll know a little bit then. But I don't think we know, and I don't think we can know. And whatever anybody says probably doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, Kevin in South Orange County had a couple of questions. He said, first one is, I'm hearing Turek or freshman Lobendon. He's talking about Max Turek or uh, Teo Lobendon is an incoming uh, freshman. As, as the center candidate, how do you think Khalil Rogers would be at that spot? Uh, you know, I, I think Khalil would be more my, my call. I think one of the problems with Max is he's so long and long arms, he really presented a problem for the quarterbacks in, in, you know, in, in getting the snap. Now, if they go all shotgun, I guess it won't be a problem. But, uh, but it was a problem. I mean, his length... You know, is there, you know, we always ask the question with Zach Banner at 6'9", is, is that too tall? Is, uh, is Max, who's, you know, looks like he's getting about 6'6 six, six now, is that too big, you know, to play center? Are you, you know, constricted a little bit if they put somebody right on your nose? Do you need a little bit, you know, you've got a little more, you know, a little more room at guard? Or, you know, is, is he going to be a candidate to move, move the tackle if they decide – you know, they, they'd want to bookend, um, you know, the two guys with that kind of length at 6'7", and, you know, and, uh, and Chad Wheeler and, and, and move, you know, Max uh, to the other side. Uh, I think a lot of good questions. You know, from what you saw, Khalil, Rod- Khalil Rogers looks like, size-wise, a really good fit at center. He, he, he's got a good setup, um, you know, it, it, has that kind of NFL center size, you know, where they, they're more the six, two and a half guys, you know, the six, two and a half and 300 pound uh, guys like, uh, you know, Ryan Khalil was, uh, he's a little, you know, heavier, a little thicker maybe than Ryan was not, not nearly as probably flexible, but, uh, but I, you would think he would get the first look would be, would be my, you know, my guess. And then, uh, yeah, I'm. I'm not sure they want to, would want to go with a true freshman at center. That would be um, that'd be asking a lot. It, it would seem to me. But you know, you really do have to see the guys. You know, get out there, do what they can do, and uh, and see where that leaves them. But uh, uh, but I'd say Rogers first. Uh, we get the first uh, first crack at it, and then we'll then we'll see from there. All right. Um, let's see. Oh, we had one other one from uh, from Kevin. How was the grass in the Coliseum this year? Any improvement, or did we still have to paint portions of it green? Kevin in South OC. Uh, much improved. Best by far. Best grass I've ever seen at the Coliseum. Uh, you know, you would notice just the little things. Games over. We're we're you know back up in the press box, and they're already you know you know cutting it and doing all the little things that you have to do on a daily basis and uh, stuff we never, we, we, we had never seen before. Uh, far, far better. Uh, not even close, but so far in a way, the best grass um, that we've ever seen. And uh, it was consistent, stayed that way all year. Uh, really, really uh, excellent job. The, you know, the change to heaven. And I, I, I don't know that they changed the employees so much, 
but just the fact that USC was in charge, uh, you know, much, 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 much better approach to the Coliseum turf. Uh, it couldn't have been any better. All right. Um, well, we got a few questions, Dan, and just to let people know, we got a lot of negative stuff about Steve Sarkeesian coming in. We get a lot of positive stuff. There's people that like, you should move on. Stop talking about what could have been. There's other people that are like, I can't believe it's going this way. So we're kind of stuck. I mean, we have to talk about what everyone's sending in and we get stuff coming in from both sides. So the next few questions, Dan, are kind of stuff on both sides of that. I'm going to start with a, uh, a voicemail question for you first and let you respond to that. Hi, Ryan. This is Al from Fresno. Um, just wanted to say through the Sarkeesian, um, situation that Dan Weber has been spot on and that Coach Harvey Hyde has been very truthful in this process. I know one thing Dan said was looking at the bowl game and the records of both teams, Washington and USC, you won't have to ask why do we need a new head coach when we have coaches that are very capable. Um, I know people talk about, you know, um, recruiting, but uh, there was good recruiting uh, even with Ed, uh, I understand there are many similarities to Sarkeesian and to Kiffin, even though many want to say that there aren't, but not being able to win over seven games in your school kind of says you've plateaued. And how can you expect someone to win at USC with that type of record? So, so that's one of the negative ones we get like that, but just want to let you respond to that, Dan. I guess if the question is, you know, why did they have to go out and hire, you know, Steve Sarkeesian at this point in time, you know, with the coaching staff functioning at, you know, fairly high level, you know, recruiting wise, and uh, obviously if you looked at, you know, the seven and two record and the, the, you know, Las Vegas Bowl, even without Coach O, it's a good question. It really is. And why the hurry? Why the necessity of of naming a person, you know, that Monday? you know, three weeks before the, um, you know, more than three weeks before the Las Vegas Bowl? I think it's a good question. I don't, I don't think we have a good answer. Uh, I don't think they've given a good answer, you know, uh, you know, for the question. It, it wasn't like, you know, oh, if we don't hire him now, someone else is going to hire him. It, it's, it is the question, and it's the question without the answer uh, at this point. You know, you know Steve has to, you know, make his own answer with what he does, you know, coming in, uh, and, and how he, how his staff performs. And, uh, you know, you know, from my standpoint, the thing this program needed most at this particular time, going into the last year of sanctions this year, and next year, the numbers are probably potentially worse than, you know, the previous couple of years. And, uh, it would have seemed that, you know, I know there was a statement by you know Pat Hayden that oh we've got four early entry guys to to decide on or whatever. It would seem like far more would have been roster conservation since the NCA you know uh, structured the penalty so that you could replace nobody who leaves, no nobody who leaves from the NFL early, nobody who transfers, nobody who flunks out. None of them can be replaced uh, with the scholarship limitation. It would seem, if, if I were making the decision, the ability to keep as many of these players in the fold, the ability to continue on with, say, 10 of the 12 guys who basically played the entire game on defense against uh, Stanford, that would have been probably my number one priority. 
probably, and I've said it before, the the the, the principle that some people say is, uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yes, he probably wasn't broke. Did it need to be fixed with uh, another year of NCA sanctions? I think that's the answer. You know, that's the question that that Sark and company really have to answer in Pat Aiden uh, as we go as we go on here. Uh, how do you how did you keep how how would you have kept the momentum going? You know, on the field and recruiting, and kept as many players in the fold. It would have seen, you know, just on the face of it, that maybe continuing on, continuing on. I mean, you'd hit a home run if you're Pat Hayden with the uh, naming of Ed Orgeron as an interim coach. Heck, you hit a home run with Clay Elton. Uh, did you need to make another another move? That's uh, that's the question. And that's what we don't know. Uh, well, so that's one side. Someone not all that excited about the uh, the new USC coaching staff. And there's other people that are frustrated on the other side too. This is Mike in '67. Said I listen to your podcast like I do every week. I enjoy the Q and A. I thought Dan had moved on from being such a supporter of the old coaching staff, but he continued to discuss how hard it's going to be next year with the new coaches, how great the old coaches were, etc. How about talking about Steve Sarkeesian's accomplishments? Life goes on, and he needs to look into the future and at the opportunities there. It appears that uh, things are not looking too bad in the recruiting area. Maybe maybe there's not much to talk about until the new staff is hired. So he rehashes history. That's Mike in 67. Not happy with what well, we've been talking if people, the, the question is, where is USC now, and how did they get there, and, and what does that look like? And I think, you know, you can stick your head in the sand and say they haven't created more problems than they had uh, before, you know, with the new coaching hire. Uh, the real, reality is that's who they are, and they got a new staff. It was the same reality. I mean, there was a similar reality that we had to deal with in terms of the off-season uh, with Lane Kiffin. For example, we knew, without a doubt, the program had to get rid of Lane Kiffin. It was there was no question, and they, they had to do it after the Sun Bowl, for without a doubt, absolutely. But could you harp on that every day? No, you couldn't. He was a coach. You had to deal with the reality. I mean. You know, coming into the season, we made that our biggest question mark about this team, which could have gone either direction, and we said as much. And with all the issues about personnel and numbers and what have you, we said the number one issue is Lane Kiffin. How does he handle this? How much has he learned? How much, you know, does he, you know, uh, how much can he change? How much, you know, can he, you know, move in the right direction? You know, now we're saying that knowing we don't think he should be there, and we think he should have been gone. So that's the reality. I think they're in a place now where it would be unrealistic to say that bringing in a new coaching staff has added a layer of instability. And uh, another question, Mark, I mean, does this team need a third defensive system in three years? Gosh, it looked like, you know, except for Brett Hundley, uh, once they got going, they had a pretty good system in place that these kids could play and believed in. And basically, you know, they shut down a, a Fresno State team, guessing they were leading the country in scoring, or darn right there, with one offensive touchdown that they really earned. And uh, that's a pretty good job by, uh, by a defense that now 
guys are going to have to be playing different positions and all that. To, to act like that's not happening, uh, then I don't think we're you know necessarily being you know fair to you know to people in terms of you know if we paint this picture that everything's fine. I mean, you looked at last year's defense. I think the one thing everybody said was, "Wow, how lucky are you that what Clancy Pendergast wanted to do just perfectly matched the personnel in place." And nobody would argue with that. It's true. Uh, now, what you know, what the new defensive coordinator wants to do does it perfectly match the personnel in place, or will that you know will that personnel still be here? Is a question. It's not an easy answer. And uh, if you change a staff in a way that limits maybe the numbers, maybe reduces the numbers of guys coming back, and and adds question marks to the ones coming, I think you got to admit that. If, if we don't say it, and if the coaches don't understand it, um, that's a problem because the players do. So. Yeah, do they have a chance to be still pretty good? I think so. Yeah, and you know, will you move on? Yeah, when uh, when they start, you know, doing things and all of that. Uh, you know, to say that Sark is probably doing a pretty good job recruiting, uh, but then you you, ma- you measure that against what kind of job was the previous staff doing? And of course, we were closer to that and we knew the kind of inroads that they had made in the short amount of time that you know ed assumed you know the the position with uh you know the way high school coaches all over the country feel about it, it an all-star game we're talking to a coach from cincinnati uh this week uh, at the semper fi game and he just raved about coach O. you know i mean he he didn't know much about the usc situation but he brought it up what a great recruiter, you know, Coach O was. Didn't have any players from Cincinnati, but uh, he knew how good, you know, that was. So that's a reality I think you got to deal with. It's a reality Sark's got to deal with and, uh, and, and work through it. It's probably good to know that it's there and know that, uh, yeah, you do have to prove yourself. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, he, it's not a... a Ideal position to be put into, I don't think, for Sark. This is not, you know, you would probably not want to be the guy that has to, I mean, I'd rather be the guy that, you know, succeeded Lane Kiffin than the guy that succeeded Coach O slash Clay Helton uh, in terms of where they stood with these players and and what their record was, uh, you know, from a very difficult, you know, middle of the season, uh, you know, takeover. So that's kind of, I think, you know, where it stands. And I wouldn't, you know, put any more into it than, uh, than it's basically kind of reality-based. This is where we are. This is where the team is. This is where the program is. This is where, you know, Steve Sarkeesian is. And uh, now let's uh, see what they can do. Fair points. All right. Uh, one last one is James in Kansas City. That's a little long, so bear with me here. I'll read it all. Uh, I have listened to the podcast recently, and although I realize that I have no way of knowing the inner workings or realities of the situation, and at the risk of sounding like an ultra-conservative, quote-unquote, turn-the-clock-back type, I feel some apprehension as to what we're hearing about the new, regi- new regime's intentions, particularly with respect to the offensive philosophy changes. I recall Marcus Allen, along with Dan and Coach Hyde, all remarking on what has been USC's traditional strengths, 
in their, uh, on offense in their belief we should emphasize that rather than attempt to imitate the trendy Oregon style. It should seem that even Chip Kelly has learned that that system does not work very well in the NFL, so switching to it would be seem contrary to our heritage of it being the best program for pro-aspiring uh, uh, players. Am I off base? What are your views, James, in Kansas City? Well, I think everything is evolving, and I don't think you want to go back to the uh, you know 1990s uh, pro style offense. I mean, if you look at you know the guys that you would say you know epitomize uh, you know pro football in terms of you know quarterbacks and offense and that, you would look at you know Peyton Manning and Tom Brady and uh, you know Aaron Rodgers and those guys, and you know you got Russell Wilson and uh, you know uh, Drew Brees are going to face off this week, and uh, uh, so. I think evolving is is where it has to go. To be honest, I think where Steve went with his offense uh, to a place where Lane didn't go uh, is a place that if USC would have stayed in, you know, with the old staff, with, you know, Coach O and Clay Helton and what have you, I think they would have been in pretty much the same place uh, in terms of the evolution with a, a more up tempo, uh, no huddle. Uh, still run the ball, run the ball hard, uh, but play fullbacks if you got them, play tight ends if you got them. I think that's uh, you know certainly what Steve has said, and so I think it's just sort of an evolution in a in a direction that actually pro football you know is going, and so I don't think it would be. It's not going to the, you know, it's not running the, you know, the you know, the spread with four wide receivers and all that kind of thing. It's not, it's not that. It's not going to Oregon uh, offense. It's not, uh, you know, going to what Arizona does. It's, uh, it's more of a hybrid, and uh, I think a hybrid, a smart hybrid, and it's where I would, would have gone too. I do think, uh, uh, and I think, it, you know, I think it'll do well with this group. Um, I think it, it maybe puts a, if you had had, had more consistent Offensive line recruiting over the last five years, say. Uh, if you had the kinds of offensive lines that when you look back at it, that, you know, starting with John McKay that USC had, maybe you could say we'll be Stanford. I mean, even Alabama's not, you know, Alabama, they're, they're, you know, evolving. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the SEC, their defense is now, as much as they've tried to, you know, evolve offensively and try to come up with better quarterbacks and do more innovative stuff. Their defenses now look like what people used to accuse the Pac-12 or the Pac-10 of of looking like. Uh, those SEC defenses might be a good example of, as they say, jumping the shark. Uh, you know, they they they've gone to a different place uh, defensively. So, uh, so uh, I think I don't think it's that big a change. Uh, and I think it's probably uh, a smart, and I think it'll fit the personnel USC has on offense because uh, you don't have you know deep, big, you know powerful veteran offensive linemen that can come up and just knock people off the ball. I mean, as much as Stanford coaches to that, recruits to that, uh, trains to that, does all the stuff. Uh, how how well did that work against Michigan State when they needed it? Uh, how well did it work against USC? Uh, you probably need another dimension, uh, and so, um, so I'm not not at all negative about where they're going offensively. All right, Dan. Well, great stuff, and uh, it's good to be back in studio, so we have a little more 
uh, solid connection, and <laughs> we'll get back to normal with yeah. these podcasts and stuff. But it's, it's uh, good to talk to you again, and thanks again for coming on. Oh, I enjoyed it. Now if we can get uh, USC football back to normal, whatever normal is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, who knows? This year might have been normal. I don't know. It's, uh, it's USC. <laughs> it certainly is. All right. Well, Dan, thanks again. And everyone else, thanks for tuning in to the Paris Help podcast. We'll talk to you all next week. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.